Welcome to Keep the Game Beautiful podcast. Each week, I highlight incredible people who are doing amazing things in soccer, the beautiful game. I'm Anna Turi, your host. Thank you for listening. As we all know, leadership is so important. Tomorrow, I'm actually starting at my first high school practice, the first ever high school season I'm ever going to have. And I'm a little nervous, but I'm definitely excited to get going into the season. Tomorrow, we're also starting up our middle school programs. My dad is coaching the boys' middle school program, and there's another girls' middle school coach. And it's just a brand new program. It's so exciting to get going. Today with Tanner, we talk about leadership and how he's become a leader and how he was how he was a leader while playing. We also talk about some more tough topics such as Black Lives Matter and gay rights and how important those conversations are. They are hard conversations to have, but I think it's important that we normalize these conversations. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am joined by Tanner Kraus. Tanner grew up playing and supporting the game and worked much through his youth. He started as the district supervisor at Come and Go, and he is now the CEO of Come and Go. Tanner, I'm wondering if you'd like to add anything else or kind of talk about what got you to where you are today. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I, uh, that's the very short version of my resume, and that's probably all the detail your audience cares about. But um, I did start working for Come and Go when I was nine years old, and I started working in our stores at a really young age. And from even before I was nine, I, I loved Come and Go. You know, my, uh, it's a family business for us. And my dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa, they all ran this company at one time. And I knew from a young age, I wanted to run this company. And so really most of my life story, most of my path and journey were about preparing me for this moment. And I'm super fortunate that I can have this dream job at such a young age. On this podcast, I always start with the same three questions. First, what does the beautiful game mean to you? The beautiful game, yoga bonito, as they would say in Portuguese. Um, to me, the, the beauty of soccer is the multiculturalism and how you can go anywhere in the world and you almost always see uh, soccer goals, soccer ball, kids playing, and it really unites people across the entire planet. I think it's, that's the most beautiful part about this game. What are actions or things you do to keep the game beautiful? Oh boy, good question. Um, you know, I, I, I try to help out where I can. And uh, when I was younger, I did more coaching than I do now. Um, I think when, you know, I've got one kid and uh, hopefully more kids coming and, and as I, you know, they get to, you know, playing soccer, I hope to be able to coach again. And so um, I think I've got something to, to give to the game and it gave me a lot. So uh, coaching, I would say. How do you encourage others to keep the game beautiful? Uh, I, I think um, by engaging, you know, I think one of the beauties of the game is, is, is like I said earlier, but it's just this cross, cross culturalism. I think it just does good things for people that are uh, involved and passionate and fans of the sport. And so, you know, there's a long way to go when it comes to Americans uh, passion and involvement and understanding of the game of soccer. And so what I try to do now is to continue to 
um, expose, you know, my peers, my friends and people in my circles to, to the game. Starting off, can you talk a little bit about how you started working when you were only nine years old? Yeah, so for whatever reason, nine was the, the age in my family. Uh, my dad started when he was nine. My older brother, when he was nine, I started when I was nine. So somehow, somewhere, we set that number. And um, I, I wanted to start before I was nine. I tried to negotiate an earlier start with my dad. I tried to negotiate, um, I don't know, I was probably eight. And he said, nope, nine's the number. And I was working in a come and go store, you know? So I was, uh, I would do Tuesdays and Thursdays after school. I'd, I'd go to a, a store in West Des Moines and I had my little routine. I'd, I'd sweep, I'd mop, I'd clean, I'd stock the cooler, I'd pick up the outside. And if I was really lucky, I could run the register. And I just really loved uh, being in stores. I loved retail and I loved the interaction with people and the customer service and the sales component. So I kept it up and uh, here I am today. When you first started working and you kind of developed into your teenage years, how did you learn to manage your time? I know that's a huge struggle for me right now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not great at time management. And you talked about when I was a district supervisor, I wasn't great at time management then and I needed to be. And so, you know, it's something that, you know, when, as a kid, you know, you lean into your parents and, you know, they're able to set, you know, calendars and schedules. And I think uh, the advent of technology and now having phones and, and tablets and all these kinds of things that, that just make scheduling and logistics easier is super helpful. Um, what you have to do, you know, is you have to just decide what your priorities are and you have to make sure that you can do your top priorities well. And, you know, I learned that I couldn't do everything. And so while I loved certain activities, you know, like there were sports that I loved that I wasn't able to, to compete because I, I wasn't able to do it at the level I wanted to do it at. And so like I was, was always drawn to football um, and I started playing flag at a young age and I was pretty good at it. But, you know, football would overlap with soccer. And I got to the point where I wasn't being uh, good enough to my own standard on the, on the football field, or I wasn't being fair to my teammates by missing practices because, you know, I was trying to do soccer and football. And so I stopped playing flag football in middle school and I missed it. And that's okay. Cause soccer did a lot for me. And I also, before you jump to the next question, I'm not saying I'm not an advocate for single sport athletes. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I just think that I was trying to do too many sports during one season. So my time management advice is to prioritize and uh, do what you can well. When making those tough decisions, like having to maybe quit a sport, what would you encourage a player to think about and to do when making it? Wow. Um, you know, my, uh, I guess this advice works when you're an adult, but I'm not sure it works as well when, when you're young is, you know, think about the long term of the game. And, you know, soccer is a game that I, I played soccer three days ago. Um, you know, if I was committing myself to football at a young age, you know, here I am in my thirties, you know, I'm not really going to be able to go out and play football. And so uh, I think there's, there's an element to the, that just the time horizon of some of these decisions that you make, but you know, when you're a kid, you know, you're not thinking about your thirties, right? I, I wasn't at least uh, maybe you are, 
uh, you're more accomplished than I was when I was your age. So, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in the moment, you know, uh, we, we tend to go, you know, to what's um, more friendly or more socially, you know, inviting to us. So my friends play a sport, so I'm going to go with them. And that's really attractive. So, you know, I think the, the best advice for young people, if, if they're not really buying into the think long-term advice, would be do what makes you feel good. And if it brings you joy and it makes you happy, then go with it. And you know what? If you take a year off of basketball and you decide after missing a year of basketball, you want to get back into basketball, that's okay. Then get back in the following year. You might have to accept the fact that you lost your starting spot. But guess what? If you're committed, you'll earn it back. I definitely have up to my early 20s planned out. But after that, I'm not exactly sure. You talked about how you always knew you wanted to be CEO, but were there ever times where you weren't sure what was next for you? Certainly, yeah. And um, I am thankful that I have uh, some parents that were able to give me some good advice along the way. And you know, my parents would encourage me to follow my passion. And again, I have three brothers and I have some step-siblings on both sides as well. And... Um, my parents were always just supportive of us doing our interests and our passions and, and they didn't want to force us down any, any certain path. And um, I think this worked for us and, and, you know, having a family business, you know, you can have a lot of pressure to, to continue and to work inside the company. And that can be a real negative because eventually if you're in it for the wrong reasons, because you, know, you feel pressure or obligated to do so, then all of a sudden you start to turn sour on the thing that is core to your family. And, and that's a real tough place to be in. And so uh, for me, it was, it was just enough um, leash or encouragement to, to go pursue things, um, but never losing sight of the, the end game. I want to jump back just a little bit. Would you encourage someone my age to work when they're younger? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's great experience. Um, you know, first it prepares you for adulthood, uh, where, you know, like it or not listeners, you need to get a job at some point. And so, uh, even if your skills don't translate, right. Like let's say you become a software engineer after you graduate college, you know, you working at a fast food restaurant may not really prepare you skill wise, but it teaches you life skills. And it teaches you a sense of responsibility and uh, having to show up on time, having to listen to authority, um, being able to contribute to um, a, a bigger mission or a bigger purpose, being a part of an organization. And um, if possible, and a lot of uh, jobs for people your age are like this, um, teaching customer service is critical. And um, having those experiences working in the service industry, whether it's retail or restaurant or whatever it might be, uh, builds a ton of empathy. And um, too often people will treat workers in this industry with disrespect. And it's a, it's a real um, turnoff just as a, as a personality trait when people are rude to waiters or they're rude to people that work in the mall or they think they're better than these people. And, and it's, it's just really ugly. And um, I think often like those people must have never had to have a service job. And uh, you get a real sense for um, 
just what's important and how to treat people by being in a business and having a job where you're um, serving others and you're working with a lot of different people across uh, the community. And so for a number of reasons, uh, even if it's just part-time, a lot of good life skills come from working at a young age. Do you think if you hadn't worked at a young age, you would be the type of leader you are now? No shot. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I, listen, I, I, uh, you know, I run come and go, right? So we're, we're a retailer and the essence of what we do is conducting transactions over a counter. And I've got a good, call it 10 years of experience in that line of work. And I know what it's like to work in a come and go store. And I know what it's like to uh, be in those environments, uh, whether it's during rush hour or whether it's late on a Saturday night. And having that experience and developing that empathy for those situations makes me a far, far better leader at what I do today and make sure that I've got my priorities in the right place as the CEO. How did soccer prepare you to become a leader? Soccer did a lot for my leadership. Um, you know, soccer gave me an opportunity to lead a young age. And um, I, you know, I was never the most skilled or the most athletic player on the pitch. Um, a lot of what I was able to contribute to the team was leadership and, and my organizational ability and my communication skills. And that's essentially what I do today in my day job at Come and Go is, you know, organize teams and people, motivate them, uh, hold them accountable, you know, assist with communication across various parts of the, the organization. And that's what I did in the soccer pitch. You know, I, I, I played center back and, you know, I, I sat in the back line and, and I, I talked a lot and, and I would, you know, communicate you know, hey, two steps right, hey, step up, hey, drop back, hold, pinch in, step up, get out, all these things, right? And, and you know, um, that's, you know, on a different scale, but that's, that's what I do today. And um, another great thing about sport, you know, that's unique to sport, or at least, you know, my experience, it was unique to sport, is the diversity of people you're exposed to in the game. And, you know, I grew up in Des Moines, in the Catholic school system in Des Moines, and uh, we had very little diversity in uh, certainly my K through eight, and um, diversity was okay at my high school, but there wasn't a lot of what also called racial integration. There was more just like pockets of uh, cultures in our high school, and you got on the soccer field, and it was easily the most diverse uh, environment that I was operating in as a, as a young boy, you know, I'm talking nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And so uh, you just get a, uh, more exposure and more experience to, um, what it's like for immigrant families or, you know, what it's like for people who speak English as a second language. And again, that just builds life skills in you. Um, because, you know, the more and more that you grow as a human being, just the more you develop, um, you just end up in more diverse pools, all right? You start with your family, which is the most homogenous unit possible. It's literally people that share your DNA. And then you end up in, you know, the quote unquote real world as a college graduate. And uh, if you're 
uh, isolated from diversity between you know birth and college graduation, you know you'll be limited in, in your ability to relate and to connect with people that don't have similar experiences and backgrounds as you. And sport really accelerated that for me. Black rights is something I definitely wanted to talk about today. Can you talk about why you choose to support Black Lives Matter and Black rights? I'd be happy to, yeah. And I applaud you for uh, making space for this conversation and, and for having it been a passion of yours as well. You know, for me, um, you know, just, I guess, quite frankly, it, it bothers me. It, it bothers me that um, whites have it better than blacks and people of color. Um, it doesn't, it's not right. And um, as somebody who has, you know, developed a, a bit of a platform myself and, and some, certainly some resources and, and I don't know, just all these things, right? Like I get to do podcasts. Um, I wanted, I wanted to leverage what I have, some of what I have to uh, make the world more just. Um, it, it, to me, it, it's just a matter of, of fairness. And um, I just, I just get frustrated knowing that, um, you know, my black and brown friends or coworkers or their children um, are starting life at a disadvantage just because of the color of their skin. And that's not right. You know, like, like it, the world should be a meritocracy. You know, it's like, you should just end up with what you end up with based upon what you contribute and not based upon what family you were born into. And certainly I was, I'm someone who was born into a very privileged family and I want to leverage that privilege and my platform to make America more just, more equitable. When starting to share your opinions on your platform, or were you at all nervous about how people would take it? You know, I was more nervous that I would uh, make a mistake and say the wrong thing while trying to do something right. Um, I wasn't as nervous about how people would take it. Um, I'm just confident enough in, in my own skin and, and, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to have pretty good job security, you know, working for our family business. And I just wanted to, to, to say what was on my mind. And I recognize that um, because of the position I have, the people would listen, or at least they would hear me. And I wanted to speak up. So no, I wasn't nervous how people would react. What is Come and Go doing now to support Black Lives Matter? So yeah, so Come and Go has, uh, you know, we've, we've stepped up in a number of ways. So we've stepped up financially and we've donated to a number of different causes in the last 12 months. Really, it dates back more than 12 months. But um, I know just personally, the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing events, uh, accelerated my awareness on this topic and my education on this topic. And it also accelerated my personal and, and my company's reaction on, on this topic. And so, you know, we've got a history of supporting um, a multitude of organizations. I, I think one of the things that I feel most proudly about at Come and Go is we have a really long history of, of philanthropy and community support. 
Um, and since the you know events of last spring, we've um, been more supportive of social causes and I'm happy for that. So we've stepped up, we've written checks, um, you know, we supported um, you know, immigrant organizations in the Cedar Rapids community after the derecho. Uh, we supported um, the Center for Constitutional Rights, an organization that's working on uh, equality of all types. Uh, we've also donated our time. And so, um, you know, my wife, my daughter, uh, my family, we've, we've uh, participated in, in peaceful protests uh, over the course of the summer. And my brother is in different cities um, out there just showing our support for the movement. And um, we've also done some training. And so, um, you know, February was Black History Month. So, you know, we had a uh, really famous uh, storyteller. His name was Andre Robert Lee, uh, a black man from Philly who came and speak, spoke to Come and Go. Uh, we have had a number of guest speakers in the last 12 months um, from uh, minority populations talk to us about their experience and, and how we can um, show up as leaders and uh, push for a more racially equitable society and at least a company. And so, uh, we, you know, we try to, you know, touch this topic in a number of ways and um, just acknowledge that, you know, this is a process and it's development and it, it, it takes time and that we have to make time for it because we've seen when we don't make time for it as leaders, the rate of progress, and that's frustratingly slow. And so we're trying to make more time for it so we can accelerate the rate of change. I wanna talk a little bit about the community support that Come and Go does. How important is it that any company supports their community in a way? Well, um, I, I think it's vital. Um, you know, that, that's obviously one man's opinion. There's multiple ways to, run an organization and and uh, I do recognize that we're very fortunate to be able to uh, support communities to the extent that we do um, we donate 10% of our profits pre-taxes to charities 501c3s and um, that's something that we've done for as long as my dad can remember and he's been in the company for more than 50 years so um, you know, it's just something where, you know, the government, the United States government doesn't provide, my opinion, again, doesn't provide ample support for the communities, right? There's just certain things that um, this country is set up in a way that we rely on private companies to uh, be change makers and, and to be, take it upon themselves to, to make the world a better place. And that's scary because it doesn't always happen. And uh, when power is concentrated in the wrong people's hands that don't share a very benevolent or uh, equal mind, um, you can see what happens. And, you know, oftentimes it's the rich get richer and, you know, everybody else is just kind of left behind. And so I'm not saying it's the right structure, but it's structure that we're in. And so I think in this, in this country, it's really important for organizational leaders to um, push for uh, policies that, not even push for policies, just take action that support community members. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, the community members are those that support their businesses. And so where would we be without them? Nowhere. 
You also mentioned helping with derecho and that was uh, for those listening that don't know it was around the beginning of August that really hit my community really hard an inland hurricane. What are some of the things that you did to help out people here? Yeah, so, you know, Come and Go has a number of stores up in the Cedar Rapids Marion area and um, we we're able to use our stores as really kind of community gathering points, um, meeting places, um, passing out information, passing out water. We donated um, come and go water for those in need. We um, supported the Red Cross and their efforts in Cedar Rapids. And um, I can't remember the name of the organization, I apologize to, but the, uh, there's another organization that was specifically supporting uh, the displaced immigrant community in Cedar Rapids, and we wanted to help out with them as well. Um, and so, you know, come and go and, and what we do, you know, with having, you know, gas and diesel, but also having some of the essentials uh, like food, beverage, snacks, medicine. Um, you know, we, we worked very diligently to be open as much as physically possible um, and, and to keep our store staff as much as possible. Uh, because we knew the community was in need of some really essential products and services that we provide. So, uh, we, you know, we, we try to keep our uptime, you know, um, as high as possible and, um, you know, just really understand that, you know, this was a, just a devastating storm that hit uh, Northern Iowa, and particularly Northeast Iowa. Moving on a little bit, I also wanted to talk about gay rights because I know this is something that you also support a lot. Why do you choose to support gay rights? Well, you know, I think it stems from the same question you asked about black rights. Um, you know, I, I, just, I just believe in the equality of people. You know, I, I, to me, I, there's nothing wrong and it doesn't matter like what, what you look like or, or, or you know, some of these certain decisions that you make or just who you are as a person. That, that's, uh, it, it bothers me in this country that, that there's people that um, discriminate against um, homosexuals or just members of the gay community. And, it, and it's, it's frustrating. And again, I, I, I recognize that, you know, I, here I have a, a bit of a platform and, and um, I just want... I just want more people in this country to, to realize that the entire population of America, the entire country would be better if we just started to make things more fair and we judge people less on their sexuality or their ethnicity and just judge people more on their character. And, you know, I, whether it's gay rights, black rights, immigrant rights, I mean, kind of, kind of, you name it. Like, it's just, like, can we just treat people equally? And like, can we give people equal opportunities, and then let the chips fall as they may? That that's just the country I want to see. I think the conversation of gay rights or black rights or just treating everyone equally is more prominent now. What can we do if we come across maybe a teammate that doesn't have the same opinion as us? It's a really good question. You know. I think the first thing, and, and I recognize that this takes strength, this takes courage, um, and there's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it ineffectively, but you, you have to shut it down when you see it. And, and if you see um, someone 
you know, in your proximity, in your circle, on your team, um, speaking in a way that is um, biased or, or racist or, or just really negative prejudice, you've got to stamp it out. And, and you, just have to, you just have to let people know that it's just not okay. And I mean, more than anything, I believe that it just stems from a lack of knowledge and understanding and a lack of exposure and experience. And, um, you know, the, the game of soccer, um, but really all the sports I played, but particularly the game of soccer, you know, really helped me learn that at a faster rate than some of my peers, just given the fact that they weren't exposed to uh, Laotians and Nigerians and, and Mexicans and Haitians and just some of the different cultures that I got through sport. And, um, you know, I just hope that people can, can ex- understand, have these experiences or at least learn from those that have these experiences. And so is it easy? No, you know, you got to stand up to a teammate or you got, or you got to, you know, take a risk and, and put yourself, you know, maybe in, in, in the, the bullseye for, for a period of time. And that's hard to do, especially at a young age, but it's important. And, um, you know, and it takes people like you and me sometimes to, to stand up for others. Um, because unfortunately, if you're prejudicial to a racial minority and they stand up for themselves, you're less likely to be influenced. But if uh, you see somebody that looks like you speak on a subject, you're more likely to be influenced by that person. And so um, it takes courage, but it's really, really important. How can we teach these players courage or bravery to stand up for themselves and to stand up for their opinions? Boy, you know, um, that takes the most courage. Um, because if you're a member of a minority community, um, you know, almost by definition, you are going to be disadvantaged relative to, you know, a white peer, particularly a white male peer. And to stand up to that is, is to stand up to, to the power and it becomes, um, a battle where you just have a, a built-in disadvantage um, because you'll have fewer resources at your disposal, or um, maybe you're the um, if it's a he said she said game, you might be less likely to be believed um, just because of people's bias, conscious or unconscious, that would be judge and jury in some of these situations. So to stand up for yourself is is challenging, and and I really admire those that can do that in a peaceful and constructive manner because it's sometimes tempting to not be peaceful or constructive and to give people what they really deserve, but that's not how we really make progress. And so, um, you know, if, if you are listening, I, I just, uh, and, and I would encourage you to stand up for yourself whenever possible. And, and again, that's why I think it's super important, Anna, that people like you and I, you know, uh, do stand up for equality is because uh, I think, that becomes a really powerful sign that uh, um, hate speech or, or, or hate activity will just not be tolerated. Another thing I also really wanted to talk to you today was mental health. And can you talk a little bit about how important your mental health is to you? Certainly. 
you know, mental health is a, a, a really important topic. And it's something that honestly, I probably took for granted for most of my life. And I didn't really understand for most of my life. And I've gotten smarter about it. And I've gotten more tuned into it lately. So, you know, mental health is, you know, I don't know if this is the textbook definition, but it's your state of being, right? It's just, how are you doing today? And if you're struggling, you know, let's say you're, you're sad or you're distracted or you're worried or you're in fear, it makes everything else you do that day harder and that week harder and that month harder. And so life becomes really challenging and that just makes it more hard. So what I've learned in the last year plus, um, certainly some of the events that we've talked about, um, obviously the pandemic has been challenging to a lot of people's mental health, myself included, is that uh, it's easier when we talk about it. And unfortunately, particularly in you know, Midwest culture, there isn't a, a, a lot of awareness or airtime that this topic gets. And we're culturally trained to keep our emotions more to ourselves. And we think that behaviors like strength and courage mean um, being tough or being confident. And what I've learned is that it takes a lot more courage to say, I'm not okay, I need help, than it does to say, I'm fine, I got this. And so the greatest act of courage is to say, just exactly that. I'm not okay. And here's why. Can you help? If not, that's okay. But just understand that here's where I'm at. And once you break down that barrier, where people think that they have to put up a shield or, a, or a, some armor, that's when you start to really make progress and really get to know people. And then as I opened with, right? Like if you're not well, what you're trying to do becomes hard. And so if you're willing to just take the courage and strength to admit you're not well, and then you're able to, to work through that with somebody, then everything else you're trying to accomplish gets easier because you're more likely to be happy. You're more likely to have a network of people that will help you with what you're trying to accomplish. So it's something that after about 30 years of taking for granted, I've really started to put a lot more attention towards. If you have a friend or a teammate or a player that comes to you needing help, what should you do? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing is to listen. And the second thing then is to, to respond in an encouraging manner. And that right there sets the tone for the rest of the conversation. Um, because if you listen and you respond uh, with a joke or you, you maybe poke fun at something the person said, that person will shut down. And then you've lost an opportunity to, to help somebody. So if you can listen and respond in an encouraging and positive way, then you can start to work towards progress and you can start to help people. So I think that's the first thing. Uh, once you've heard them and you have a sense for uh, some of the problems that they're trying to solve, 
it just depends on what you're trying to, what that person's struggling with. Um, but there's a number of resources out there. Um, you know, there's good things on the internet. Now there's a lot of bad things out there too, but there's some good things on the internet. You know, you know hopefully there's a coach or a teacher or a parent or a school administrator, uh, a counselor that could be helpful as well. Um, and, you know, there's also a lot of good uh, therapy options. And, uh, you know, I've gone to therapy for the last couple of years. It's been great for me. It's great to have kind of a life coach who's got a doctorate in psychology and human behavior. Like what a great person to have in your corner. Uh, therapy carries a bit of a stigma and, and people think it's reserved for those that have more severe illnesses. Not necessarily. Like it's just somebody you can talk to that might be outside of your network that you is, is a, that creates a comfortable space for you. So a number of options, it just kind of depends upon what that person's going through. If someone is going to therapy, but they're ashamed about it, what would you tell them? First off, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, here I am, I'm the CEO of a company, I go to therapy. And it's been super helpful for me. Um, not every experience is as positive as mine has been, and I get that, but uh, it's, it's like having a, a personal trainer or it's like having a life coach or it's like having a mentor or it's just like having a, um, I don't know, a, a trainer at your gym. You know, I mean, these are just all different people in our life that are, are, you know, here or, you know, sometimes paid to help us. And, you know, um, I recognize that people might not always respond well to the, to the concept of therapy uh, but again, I think that just comes from a lack of experience and exposure. And, and I think that if um, the more that people just realize that, hey, it's, it's kind of like hiring a personal trainer, but for your mind instead of your body, uh, maybe they'll start to be destigmatized and more people will, will sort it out because it, it's statistically proven to help people and help in outcomes. And I can personally just advocate for the fact that it really helped me. So um, first, don't feel ashamed. But second, if you do feel ashamed, um, you know, talk about it at your own pace. Don't feel pressured to, to do so. Um, but just know that when you're ready, it's okay. If you see someone close to you struggling, but they're afraid to say that they're not okay or be courageous in that way, how can you talk to them and kind of tell them they can open up to you? These are really good questions. Um, I would say that um, sometimes it takes you going first. And sometimes people are reluctant to be the first one to share, particularly when it's about something deep and personal. And so if you can go first and be vulnerable with that person and let them know that you have struggles too, then they'll understand that it's okay to share those types of struggles and what they're going through is more, more normal. You know, sometimes people think that their friends don't have problems. 
or that um, they must have a happy home or that they've got everything figured out because they're good at school. And there is no such thing as a perfect kid. There's no such thing as a perfect adult. We've all got struggles. We've all got issues. We've all got things that we deal with. And so if you're struggling to get through with somebody, go first and, and open up with them. You had mentioned that mental health wasn't really a huge thing to you until recently. When you were playing, did you ever focus on your mental health? I did. Um, you know, one thing that I learned, and this is, I guess, somewhat related to mental health, but the, the power of visualization is really strong. And in a way, it's, it's training your brain to develop experiences when you're not physically there in the moment. And so um, I think this is a form of mental health. If not, um, hopefully it's an okay answer otherwise, but uh, like, you know, like penalty kicks, right? Like super nerve wracking. Like you need to have a really calm mental state to, to if you're on offense, at least to, to, to succeed, to score the goal, right? If you let your, your anxiety take over, you're more likely to, to miss the shot. So one of the things that we can do particularly effectively in sport is to close our eyes and picture ourselves on the field and to picture the ball and the goal and the goalie and the referee and the trees behind the goal and the sun in the sky and go through that process and get to that moment and then watch yourself kick the ball in the back of the net and do that repeatedly. That is proven to make you more successful when it's game time. And so when you do step up to the spot and you do have that opportunity, you've been there before and your brain has been there before. And then you can give it your best shot. You'll be more mentally calm and you'll be more likely to score the goal. I have definitely heard a lot about visualization, but I haven't really tried it necessarily what advice would you give to someone that's first trying out visualization and learning about it? Oh boy. Um, I would just say um, it doesn't take much to try. That's my advice. Um, there's no real cost to trying it. You know, like you're laying in bed, lights are off, whatever, good time. You're, headed to practice, you're on the bus to a game, close your eyes and just figure out the details. Think about, you know, what color is the referee's shirt? You know, what color is the sky? What minute are you in? You know, like, what does the grass smell like? Are you muddy? Those little details really help cement the reality in your brain. And once you get those little details, once you try it, it's going to be a little awkward at first. Most things are right, but keep at it. And it's honestly, it's proven to help outcomes. And it's not just a soccer thing. It can be anything in sport. It could be a presentation at school and just go through this in your brain and picture the podium and picture the teacher and picture the clock on the wall and all those little things in the classroom. And you'll be more confident when you get to that moment. Our time today is quickly coming to an end, and I have one final question, which I ask every guest. 
what do you hope people remember about your impact to soccer and the world? Wow. I hope that people, I hope that people remember that I made the world a better place and that I, I took what I had and I took what I was given. I took what I earned and I used that for the betterment of people beyond just me and my family. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours and uh, it's great to be here. You ask great questions. <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed right away learning about Tanner's experience while working young. Recently, I just applied for my first official job. I've been refereeing for a while now and I do make money from that, but it's not exactly, exactly a job. So I was excited to kind of get that application in and start to get going on the actual workforce. I also really enjoyed talking about mental health. This is something that has been so important to everyone during quarantine times and when the whole world was shut down. And it's something that we've begun to more normalize more, but there still is work that needs to be done. I hope you enjoyed the episode and until next time, remember to keep the game beautiful. Mm-hmm.